Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> Big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make EdTech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Good evening and welcome to the Late Late Show with your host, Ray. If you are a teacher and you've ever found yourself wondering what were these kids doing at their previous school because they can't do anything by themselves, this show might be for you. We're looking at how to build independent learners across primary, secondary and FE. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So on our show this evening, we have uh, a few different guests today. We have two different guests joining us. Um, we have Yasmin, who is a an experienced teacher at a large FE school, large FE college, sorry. She's also been the head of biology in a secondary academy. So <clears throat> she's, she's a very experienced teacher of science um, across two different types of schools. So she's got a, quite an interesting perspective. Um, we also have joining us Claire, who has a slightly longer resume. She's been she's been doing this for for even a bit longer than we have. So Claire um, qualified in two thousand six. She's been the head of um, early years unit and a junior school. She's taught in private and state schools. She she has been head of maths, computing, and a lead teacher of performing arts, which I find an interesting combination of skills. There, um, she's also recently completed her MPQH, and she's got a particular interest in metacognition, working memory, and classroom practice, which is um, really interesting. And I'm particularly interested to discuss with them how this this feeling of um, frustration that I often get as a secondary teacher 
relates to their experiences in Effie and primary, because I, I don't know about um, any of you listeners, but um, it, it feels like every year we say the exact same thing. We find ourselves saying the exact same thing. Um, what were these kids doing? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why do they come to us with no um, independent skills, no initiative, no idea what seems to be going on around them or how they can take ownership of their own learning. And, and that that strangely never seems to go away. It seems to be in secondary anyway, in my experience, what were they doing in primary school? And then it's, what were they doing in year seven? And then it's, well, what were they doing in year eight? And it's, it's this kind of pass the buck blame game that, that seems to happen again and again and again, every year, every year, every year. So clearly the problem is not the students. Clearly the problem is not the particular school or the particular teacher. It's um, it's something a little bit bigger than that. So um, before I, I, I ramble too much, um, I just want to give our, our, our guests uh, a chance to speak here. Um, why don't we start with, yeah, let's start at the top. Let's start with Effie. Um, Yasmin, are you there? Hi, yeah, I am. Hello, Yasmin. So why don't you um, tell us a bit about your experience that I haven't already covered and, and why this topic is of particular interest to you? So for me, it really stems from the idea that I'm preparing my students to go off into the big wide world of university and uh, careers. And part of our job as FE teachers is to sort of build on this skills uh, that they mm-hmm. should be having. And one of those is that idea that actually we need individuals that are self-directed, self-reliant, you know, able to look at their strengths, their weaknesses and sort of be quite critical about that. Yeah. Um, but when they come to me at the grand old age of 16, <laughs> they don't even know how to use a glossary in a book without being directed to. Yeah, I had a fun time teaching your seven how to use a dictionary this morning. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's clearly taught to them. And then as soon as they move to a new provider or a new key stage, it's like we have to start again. Yeah. Yeah. And we we find that, and you'll remember this from your your time in secondary as well, It's there, there's such a huge gap between primary and secondary and then secondary and beyond key stage four and five that it, it often feels like you are trying to reinvent the wheel or create a civilization from scratch um, in what you're trying to accomplish. And and again, that's not any any particular students or teachers' fault, I don't think, but I think it's the systems that we have in place that can be quite yeah. frustrating. So I imagine your FE experiences are even more frustrating because I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there must be even more pressure i mean we we know what the pressures of gcse are but there must be more when you know that these kids are going to turn 18 they're going to finish whatever they're doing they're going to go into the wider world as you said and that is that no one's going to be there to catch them so there must be that sense of almost like desperation (laughs) yeah is that the worst part is you know you're preparing a lot of them for ucas and university and that's a that's a life changing moment, isn't it? Where you go and what course you get onto, and then that's dependent on the grades they get. And then you, as a teacher, are like, "Well, is that grade dependent on me?" Yeah. <laughs> Surely the grades dependent on them, but the students. So many of them have that extrinsic idea that everything has to come to them from outside. 
Ah, yes. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes. More on that later. Um, yes. Thank you, Yasmin. Um, Claire, do you, <laughs> do you want to um, introduce yourself, Claire, and, and just add in your, your thoughts on this topic and why it matters to you? Um, yeah, well, um, I just listened to, to Yasmin there, some really good uh, points. I think I agree with a lot of them. Uh, I do uh, think from where I am that um, a lot of the time, um, the different phases of education sometimes see themselves in isolation. So it seems mm-hmm. to be uh, early years, primary, secondary, uh, yeah. you know, sick form, further education. And it's um, sometimes I think we forget the, 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 the need for that joined up cohesion between yeah. some of the settings. Uh, I think that uh, children are changing. I mean, I've been yeah. teaching since 2006 and children have changed. Um, yeah. from the children I first did my teaching practice with to the children now uh, and I, I don't think the education system has caught up yet I, no. I think it's still too far behind I, I think I mentioned to you uh, yesterday when we had a quick chat that uh, the seeds of the current curriculum were sown in 2011-2012 yeah. before they, yeah. they were introduced in 2014 and that's 10 years and if you think of what's happened in 10 years Mm-hmm. In terms of technology, in terms of uh, educational thinking, everything is completely changed. The workforce, the work, uh, the work environment, everything is completely yeah. changed. And I don't think the education system has quite caught up yet. It's still kind of looking for the wrong things. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, have you? Have either of you now? Has either of you noticed um, this this gap that we've we've mentioned briefly? I don't know. I mean, Claire, you can definitely comment, you know, early years to primary, but do you feel that there's this, the way that the systems are set up almost kind of encourages teachers in particular schools and to teach particular key stages to see, to see them as distinct and see them as different from each other? And does that filter down to the way that we treat the young people that we're trying to teach and the expectations that we have? Because I know, I know from my personal experience, there's, there's always a dip in year seven. The, these kids come to us from primary and the, and the primaries rave about them on, a, on an academic and, and personal level. I've seen it from a pastoral perspective as well. Oh, this child's so mature. This child is attaining X, Y, and Z. And then they come to us and they are like deer in headlights and they're, they're struggling to adapt. And maybe it's the building and maybe it's the six teachers a day and maybe it's moving around and maybe it's the older students and whatever it is there. And there's, you know, undeniably data-wise an attainment gap between what they're getting in year six and, and what they're achieving in, in year seven. Have you have you experienced that as well, yeah, Claire? I, um, yeah, I can get messages from uh, usually math teachers, uh, year seven math teachers who say, what did you teach them? They, they said they've never yeah. had a fraction before. You know, <laughs> you said they can do decimals, but they haven't got a clue. Um, that that yeah. kind of thing. I think um, anecdotally, I, I do uh, hear a lot of teachers kind of theorizing that children when they get to secondary school suddenly go from being children to young adults mm. and they're expected to make the leap up to being young adults without the kind of infrastructure and I don't know that secondary schools uh, do a lot of good transition links a lot of good um, pastoral links yeah but the education that they're expected to do expects them to grow up too quickly um, yeah I, I think um, and there was for a while there were middle schools I don't know if you had them where you were but children would be mm-hmm. in primary school at the end of year four and then year five six seven and eight would be in a, a middle school then they go off to high school at year nine and mm-hmm. in my opinion that kind of the gap between primary and secondary 
doesn't always work for everybody. I get that, you know, it's, it yeah. doesn't always work. But that kind of middle ground sometimes yeah. can help by being a good link between the two rather than going from being year six. And don't forget, you know, uh, if some of the children are summer babies, they could still yep. be, you know, 10, 11. By the yep. time they move up into, and they're still children. And yet they're mm -hmm. now expected to be grown-ups, for want of a better word, for 16th yep. of the year and, you know, um, you know, uh, moving around to different places on campus, huge sites, scary year 11s, you know, <laughs> it, it can be really overwhelming. It absolutely can. And I, I love that you mentioned the summer baby phenomenon because I... <laughs> so I have a year seven form this year, very beginning of the year. I had them all design their own cupcakes, little little paper cupcakes, and they put their name and their birthday on it and they colored them how they wanted. And we've got them all around of our, our form board in the form room. And I realized as I was stapling them up, um, and I only clocked this the other day when I was looking at them absentmindedly, I suddenly went, whoa, a full third of them are born between mid-May and August a third of those kids, which doesn't seem like very much because, you know, there's only 12 months in a year. But when you look at who they are <laughs> and the struggles that they're currently experiencing and what they're finding really difficult about school and adjusting and adapting to year seven, it, it, it seems like a very strong correlation. So there, you know, there are these really, really, really young kids. I think you're right. There are these really young kids who are asked to make this enormous leap and they have quite significant pressures put upon them in a way they haven't experienced yet. And then I, I guess we all kind of turn around and act shocked and offended when they're, when they're struggling to adjust. And do you, do you feel like that has any, any play into how teachers are viewing them in terms of why aren't these kids able to look up a word in the dictionary when I'm sure they could have done it last year? Or why don't these kids know what fractions are when I'm sure they did in year six? Do you think, do you think those things are definitely related? Um, I, I do. I, I think that a lot, I mean, if my, some of my favorite people in the world are uh, reception teachers, early years teachers. I think they're, you know, real superheroes. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of them, they will tell you that, a child who's four they have them for a year and that's a quarter of their life i've which never is, thought of it that way which is amazing to think of a quarter and terrifying of yeah they are with their their teacher and how much progress that child makes in that quarter of their life yeah and how fast they move on and again it, it kind of goes through you get them you know uh you have them with you and they make so much progress and it's quick, it's quick, it's quick. Then they're on to the next thing. Right, okay, key stage one phonics assessment. You know, key stage one times tables, key stage one sats. And then they get into year three. Some of them do cat testing. Year four, year five, they're preparing for sats. Year six, preparing for sats. And it's mm -hmm. one thing after another. And we go, 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 go. And we're so keen to get them to the next sat or the next grade or the next transition link we don't often stop and think hang on these are children and you know i know we've got to get them somewhere but are we actually teaching them properly or are we kind of just rushing through it a bit mm. yeah and i think i think mm. that conversation about um teaching to exams and how how 
primary teachers are so focused on SATs and, and secondary teachers are so focused on GCSEs and FE teachers are, or sixth form teachers are so focused on whatever it is that they're leading to. It, it, it really does take over absolutely every second of your teaching life and doesn't leave a whole lot of space for for anything else. I think that's a that's a huge part of it, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a bit. I just want to re- return to you, Yasmin, for a minute. Um, do you feel, just we're talking about expectations that we're putting on these young people at particular developmental stages in their life at particular ages. Do you feel like at times maybe we're treating FE students like students fresh out of their GCSE or might we be putting too high expectations on them or be treating them in a way that we maybe shouldn't in the same way that, that we're making some mistakes with year seven in, uh, sometimes? It's a tricky one because you get them not that long after their GCSEs and you go, well, you've just achieved on this. You've come on to this subject now and you've just shown that you've achieved. But now I'm expecting you to build the links. But I think actually the specs are designed in such a way that it's quite accessible early on with being able to bridge between GCSE and A-level. There's a lot of common ground where we can okay. recap and build their confidence, which does help. Yeah. And that's, this is, what's, what subjects do you teach at, in, a, in your school right now? Science. Oh, just, it's a general science. Okay. All right. Well, I, do, I teach biology specifically. Oh, okay. Um, okay. But... So I'm just thinking about the years, in years past when I've taught um, A-level English literature, um, and media studies to a lesser degree, but English literature definitely there, it, it is so different. So I, I think there's a, there's a huge variation in, in from subject to subject because English mm. literature at GCSE is, I mean, obviously to get a nine and to have that writing flair and to do, you know, do X, Y, and Z is obviously slightly different, but to get a good grade, to get a solid grade in English literature at GCSE is incredibly formulaic. You can have very little um, <laughs> original insight or or flair, however you define it, um, and you can get you could easily get a six realistically, um, or higher if you tick all of the boxes. But at it's, it's just very straightforward. It's very simple what they're what they're asking what they're asking of students compared to what students have to do. At, at a level, their their entire um, assessment objectives that just do not exist at GCSE. There there is a level of skill and a level of awareness and a level of um, being able to make connections and and see the wider picture on a skill that is required for literature at A level, but you know would easily get you a nine at GCSE and and, and is no way even in the in the marks game. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's it is oh, yeah. it's it's a very different beast. What I find and very I, tricky. Oh, sorry. Is that idea no, of actually getting the entry requirements? If you're a studious student and you learn lots and lots of facts and you can recall those facts, you might do quite well at GCSE. Mm-hmm. But you then haven't learned the skills to be able to move on to an A level where you actually have to apply that information and make the links like that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and students come up and they go, but I was able to do this before. Why can't I do it now? And it's, yeah. do you have the skills to be able to do it now? Or were you just very studious and learned lots of things? 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very similar in in literature. To be honest, if you memorize enough and you learn a couple basic skills, and you can pull out a, a very good grade for for literature or GCSE, and then they get to A level and they have to engage with these critics and write these really quite challenging essays about <laughs> about things that they've never had to think about before, and it's about very very different types of texts, and it's. It is very shocking, very shocking for for a lot of students. So, yeah, I definitely find that as well. So, I, I suppose it's more of a the, these are the problems, and and I, I guess there's they can be quite similar from primary all the way through to FE. And I suppose the questions that follow are what are we supposed to do about this <laughs> and how are teachers how on earth are teachers supposed to manage um everything that we've discussed and get these kids to to be able to do these things without constantly being spoon-fed a word that we will discuss again in a moment this show is brought to you in partnership with john cat educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins, <laughs> big conversations, budding aspirations. Our goal? To make EdTech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Guardian features comment on a parliamentary report which is calling for an overhaul of secondary education in England. The House of Lords report says the education system for 11 to 16 year olds is too focused on academic learning and written exams. The report also calls for the English Baccalaureate or EBAC introduced by Michael Gove during his tenure as Education Secretary to be scrapped as a school performance measure. The government ambition for 90% of Year 10 pupils to be entered for EBAC subjects by 2025 is criticised for being too limiting and not allowing pupils to study a range of subjects. Criticism is also levelled at the overburdened curriculum as a result of content and the 25 to 30 hours of examinations at the end of Year 11. The report echoes some concerns expressed by some teachers and school leaders. Recommendations include allowing schools to offer a more varied range of learning experiences, more opportunities to study creative, vocational and technical subjects, 
and that pupils should have the option to take functional literacy and numeracy qualifications that are equal in value to GCSEs in English and Maths. Former Education Minister under the Conservatives, Joe Johnson, says the evidence received was compelling and that change was urgently needed. Former Education Secretary Kenneth Baker said dropping the EVAC would give schools greater freedom. Unions welcomed the calls but said school funding, recruitment and retention and cutting workload were essential to making any changes a possibility. A Department for Education spokesperson said, We are constantly seeing the success of our reforms, citing recently released PISA rankings and being named best in the West for primary reading out of a comparable 43 countries. The Observer focuses on Scottish schools dropping the PISA ratings and featured an opinion piece by Sonia Soda. The piece lays blame squarely on the curriculum reform which began under the SNP in 2010. It changed the focus from knowledge emphasising the development of transferable skills. The approach is linked to the idea of preparing children with skills they need for jobs that don't exist yet. But the article says this is a theory based on zero evidence. The article goes on to make links to other countries which made similar changes and saw similar declines, including Sweden and France. It also focuses on the impact such a curriculum has on disadvantaged pupils, increasing, it says, the gap between the non-disadvantaged peers. As the House of Lords report levels criticism at a so-called traditional system in England, it seems that Scotland's more progressive approach is being seen in a similarly negative light. The BBC World Service features a piece on universities in Hong Kong. Once attracting talent from around the world, now academics fear Beijing is restricting academic freedom. In 2021-22, to 22, more than 360 scholars left eight public universities. The turnover rate, 7.4%, is at its highest since 1997, when Hong Kong returned to Chinese rule. Foreign student enrolments have dropped by 13% since 2019. Security guards are now a common sight in universities, ensuring that students and visitors must identify themselves. At the Chinese University of Hong Kong, the democracy wall has been stripped bare and a statue of the goddess of democracy is gone. The 2020 national security law targets subversive behaviour and has seen libraries emptied of books of bad ideologies and a ban on protests. Job applications for professors have dried up and fewer students are enrolling for PhDs in humanities and social sciences. Some academics say that even being an expert on China is a risk these days. Further details on this story can be found on the BBC News website. Pupils in Liverpool got a Shakespeare masterclass from Ray Fiennes, which they described as weird but outstanding. The Harry Potter actor is starring in Macbeth at Liverpool's The Depot, but was supporting the Friends with Shakespeare event in a local school. The workshop included warm-up games, group work and language analysis. The star also focused on the theme of ambition in Macbeth and linked it to future plans and careers for students. Finally, GCHQ has released its annual brain teaser for UK school children. Its code-breaking challenge is aimed at 11 to 18-year-olds. More than 1,000 secondary schools signed up for this year's event, according to the BBC Breakfast Programme. It is the third edition of the challenge, 
and it is designed to test code breaking, maths and analysis skills, with each test designed to be harder than the last. There are seven tasks in total and children are encouraged to tackle them in teams, as solving puzzles needs a mix of minds. The full challenge can be found on the GCHQ website, just in case you want to test your own skills. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Well, you can see, I'm sure, why I wanted to uh, leave the talk about spoon feeding and, and so much content in the curriculum and not having enough time until after the news break. Um, there's quite a bit of interesting stuff in there. Although, can I, I would, I would cut off a limb to be in a workshop with Ray Fiennes. I was just thinking that. Why? I was literally just oh. thinking, oh my goodness. The, oh man, that's just, I've just got the worst well. FOMO. Oh. I know, I know, two of my favourite things in one room. Anyway, so <laughs> um, that report that was mentioned was really interesting, <clears throat> that there's too much focus on academic learning and exams. Um, we have an overburdened curriculum. Um, we should be prioritising skills over knowledge, etc. I feel like this this is so relevant to what we're talking about <laughs> because yeah. we, we just don't have the time we're talking about students who need i th in, in my point of view thinking about my secondary students clearly need to be directly specifically intentionally taught skills like time management and uh revision skills and how to look up a word in the dictionary how to do all these things that will allow them to engage on a deeper level with their learning and therefore, you know, care about it more, maybe remember it more, maybe be able to use it in the future. Uh, these things that will allow them to function more successfully in, in future academic or uh, career endeavors in, in life. And I just, I find myself not having any of the time required to teach these things. And by the time it gets to the point where they absolutely need them <clears throat> in school, for me in my lessons, there's there's like negative time because we, we can't even cover all the content before their exams hit. And it's like, how are you meant to get through everything? And I think of subjects like like maths who have like I hear maths one of my one of my very good friends is a, is a head of maths at a London school and she's she's even said like there's there's so much content that they have to cover and they don't have the luxury of you know having two shots at it like we english teachers do as if that's a luxury but different conversation like how are we supposed to how are we supposed to help these children in the developmentally appropriate way develop their independent learning skills when we don't even have the time or the resources to adequately teach them the content for the 35 exams that they have to take how is this? I mean, Please enlighten so, me if you have a solution. <laughs> so, I mean, there's been a lot of research done um, uh, recently on um, the subject of working memory and um, metacognition, which is mm -hmm. kind of my uh, interest at the moment. And it's interesting you're saying about um, uh, child's, uh, children's pupils' focus and, and how they lose focus. I think we were having a chat yesterday. I, I kind of called them the TikTok generation, where everything happens yeah. instantaneously and they can't. Uh, focus and if you think about a, a child who or a pupil who cannot focus in uh, for a long time and then you're expecting them to read great expectations 
or Hamlet, which is classic, absolutely classic, but you, you can't expect them to sit and, and, and read it at the moment. And I think children have changed quicker than the education system has changed. But I think there are there are kind of uh, moves to, to kind of try and uh, counter this with, with the theories of, of, of metacognition and uh, working memory. Um, and um, I, I, you're probably aware of this, but there are three kinds of memory um, that are mm -hmm. appropriate to, to kind of learn. There's your long-term memory, which is where you hold all your your, your 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 experiences, your knowledge, everything you see, you hear, you've done, everything you learn is there. Mm -hmm. Then you've got your short term memory, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of like your instant memory. But then there's the working memory, and um, the, the good example of this is uh, holding information whilst doing something with it. And the example mm -hmm. I've got is if I asked you to work out mentally without pen and paper what fifty seven times twenty three would be, that oh, is no. using your working memory. Right, because you you have to hold those numbers, mm -hmm. then find a strategy from your long term memory, work it all out, hold the answer, maybe do a bit of addition in there, and then say the answer. So your working right. memory is the ability to to, to kind of to, to kind of do that, um, and where working memory, I think, uh, recently has declined. I think uh, you see it in children and. Um, if I read out some uh, characteristics of children with poor working memory, um, mm -hmm. they behave though they haven't paid attention. They forget part of instructions. They don't see tasks through completion. They frequently lose their place in tasks. They forget the content. They make poor academic progress. They're considered by teachers to have short attention spans and be easily distracted. And mm -hmm. I can think of so many of my classes where I, I, I can see pupils that. And Initially, when I started, before I started this course, I thought, well, they're just, they're, you know, they're inattentive, they're naughty, they're uh, being disruptive. And it didn't occur to me that it might be working memory mm -hmm. they, they were struggling with. And there are ways around this. And this is where metacognition comes in. And um, metacognition, uh, in its basis form, is thinking about thinking. Yeah. And it, it can't be done in isolation. So one teacher um, in the class could teach metacognition and it probably might work in a primary school where we, we have a, 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 the same class every lesson every day. Mm -hmm. But for secondary, if only one teacher is doing it and they see them once every two weeks, it's not going to work. But right. if, your SLT, if your SLT decrees that they're going to have a big push on metacognition and every single teacher in the whole school is doing it then that can make a difference um and i'll i'll step back for a moment and then <laughs> um i'll let you speak and then i'll i'll explain a bit more about what uh, what you can do in the classroom to kind of improve the, the metacognitive uh, experience yeah that would that would be great because i i find when you were when you were trying to explain working memory i was rather than trying to to do the math problem you just gave me um I was trying to imagine some student situations in my class. And I, it, there's, there was a student I taught today who seemed to be unable to write the date and the title in their book. Not that they weren't trying, but it was like every time they looked at the board and then looked down and wrote it, it, it was like I could see on their face. It was like the the words and the numbers and the letters were kind of slipping through their fingers like sand yeah, <laughs> and they couldn't like, um... and they kept 
cognitive load theory that because writing the date and writing the title are two different things the date is numbers yeah. and writing the yeah. title is words and you know if you said write the date and then once yeah. the date has been clicked then write the but because you said write the date <laughs> and the title even though to us it's like oh that's a comparatively easy task that should be the basis to start yeah. every single lesson ever because and it is claire it, it is, is. <laughs> absolutely but we're finding that children their, their working memory is declining Their working memory can be improved it can be improved but it's like a muscle you know you go to the gym and you see these, these these hunks doing all the weights and stuff working memory is exactly like that it's a muscle that can be used and can be improved and metacognition yeah. is is a way of doing it uh and so metacognition i i've tried to kind of uh, find a, a good example. I found one on um, the Educational Endowment Foundation run a podcast. And the one kind of um, analogy that uh, the presenter came up with for metacognition was, uh, say you have to go to an appointment. Uh, before you go to the appointment, you make a decision on how you're going to get there. Okay, mm -hmm. And you decide, oh, I'm going to drive to my, my appointment. You then start thinking, well, how long is it going to take me? Oh, it's going to take me about half an hour. And you start driving. And then along the way, you meet things like diversions, mm -hmm. bin, bin lorries, mm -hmm. you know, a wrong turn, uh, a street closure, uh, a fire engine, anything that could happen. And when you, as you're driving, you're making these decisions about what to do next. And mm -hmm. when you arrive at the uh, when you arrive at the actual appointment, you find that there's a bus stop outside it. You go, ah, if I'd known that, I would have got yeah. a bus. And that's metacognition in a very kind of um, kind of crude form. You, you, everything you do, you think you plan out of what you're going to do. Then as you go and you make little changes, and then when you completed it, you go now. What if I had to do that journey again? What could I change about it? And how would I make it better? And that's what metacognition is in a classroom. And it can be done. I mean, we've always, I mean, I've seen it on lesson plans. You always have that little bit yeah. at the end, that three-part lesson. You know, remember the three-part lesson? Start, yeah, yeah. main, plenary. And the plenary, mm -hmm. how many times I've, I've seen ECTs and training teachers write, evaluate lesson. You know, get pupils yeah. to evaluate their learning. And they yeah. put it on there, and then the, the head of the department, the head of the year, go, yeah, excellent, glad you're including that. <laughs> and yet, are they actually getting the pupils to evaluate it? Because you can say, oh, no, you need to get people to evaluate their learning. Yeah, I asked them to do that. But did they? And no. I think it no. comes back to the, meta, the, 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 the metacognitive process is essentially um, providing a kind of framework as to what um, uh, the, the children, what, how we can help pupils become independent were, uh, learners. Um, because pre presumably, if they're sorry, presumably if they're if they've have actually evaluated what they've done, if they've thought about their learning, if they've reflected on that process and understand things that they and that they didn't before, then they're in a better position to obviously improve their work next time. But exactly. they know they have they have a much stronger grasp on what like what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're doing it and they'll be less exactly. dependent on the authority in the room to Being i'm going to use the s word again to spoon feed them exactly now there, yeah. is, there is an element of spoon feeding in, involved but if i kind of read out the the, the process so again this is the eef um 
website and it's on there it's a free resource and, and they say there's seven steps to activating metacognitive learning uh, the first step is activating prior knowledge we, we know this and the, the, the evidence says that the more you know the easier it is to know more okay mm-hmm. so all teachers need to get that baseline of where your children are and it doesn't matter what level the children are they could know nothing or everything you just need to know where they are and this could be by a quiz by knowledge of your students however you want to do it then it needs mm-hmm. uh, some explicit kind of strategy instruction. Um, how are they going to complete the task? And then take them through the steps. Because, I mean, there was a, an author years ago called Pi Corbett, and he was a champion of children's writing. And he said, how are children ever going to know what good writing is if they've never mm-hmm. seen it? So you, yeah, exactly. you, talk about, you, you talk about the children not being able to use a dictionary. Yeah, and, 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 and I, I know there's children there who don't know the alphabet. But are we assuming that they've not been taught or they haven't quite got the hang of it. Yeah. So it's important to say, right, okay, so this is how we use a dictionary. Then you go on to things like uh, modeling strategies. I do it in my classes. I always talk through my thinking and the children roll their eyes at me and they get really pissed <laughs> because they know, oh, well, here she goes again. She's saying the same thing again, but it's in there. How you do a math problem, how you do a science evaluation, how you uh, evaluate uh, an English paragraph for P-E-E-D. You've got to show them how to do it. And then once they've done that, they memorize it. You then become a guide alongside rather than a sage on stage. Right. You kind of support them through the learning process. And once they've kind of got the hang of it, you give them that independent practice to do it. And then the last step yeah. is structured reflection. You can't completely take away the structure. You can't because that's when they lose it. But you can lessen it. You can lessen it and lessen, lessen it until when they've really got the hang of it, you can almost just enter the room, give them the task and then let them go. Yeah. But it's really, really important that they get shown that. Now, that process, if it's done once in a 45 minute English lesson every two weeks, it's not going to work. But if the mm-hmm. whole school is doing it for every single lesson, and mm-hmm. yes, it can exist with art and PE and music and science and maths, it can be for all these different subjects, but it mm-hmm. does require a little bit of rethinking because we can't change the education system as it is. We can't. No. And until a government comes in and changes it, we can't do anything about it. And schools are still going to be judged on GCSE results and the key stage two sets. There's nothing we can do about that. Yet. Let's be optimistic. (laughs) Yes. Ray for Prime Minister. Um, Yes. But we can change little bits in our practice to help the pupils get onto it. Because children are changing. They are. They're all obsessed with their phones and TikToks. Again, that's a sweeping generalization, but that's what that's what we're faced with. Um, and I think a few little tweaks to lessons can really, really make a big difference. Yeah, and I, I feel like you're you're clearly the expert on this, and I'm I've I have merely sat through a number of CPD sessions from a number of of. Um, SLT uh, teaching and learning leads and and some external a range of external providers actually in previous schools talking about things like metacognition and and the importance of it and how it can lead to um, big important things. Um, but I feel like every every subject 
has their own kind of way of, of implementing those different strategies. And what that would look like in the classroom is obviously going to be different for, you know, a, a year 11 English class versus a, a year seven maths class, for example. Um, so there's this, there's this thing that, that apparently they do for a level English language, which I've never taught. So I don't know, but I, this is what my colleagues have said. And we, one of the colleagues shared it in our department CPD earlier in the year and said, this is a really great way of, of teaching students to kind of take more ownership and uh, have more awareness of their creative writing when we're doing the creative writing unit. And it basically involves splitting the page into um, two, a bigger two thirds where they, which they write on. And then it's basically like a, a super wide margin along the left side. And then after they've written whatever they've written, they go through and kind of pick it apart and annotate it. And they have to, select highlight certain things and annotate them and explain why they've written what they've written and what the effect is and why they chose this word and why they chose this phrase and why they 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 use this particular syntax in that sentence and the, explain the punctuation and it really they have to absolutely rip to shreds their own work like in a way that you just wouldn't normally ask them to do in a normal lesson and that's it's kind of the difference between yeah yeah and it's it's i've i've tried it with my year 10s for their creative writing and when I, when I was first explaining to them what they were doing, they were looking at me like I was from Mars. And bear in mind, this is the first, this is like week three of me teaching them. Like I just arrived at the school and this new teacher and I'm asked, I'm like, fold your page into thirds and do this. They're like, who is this crazy woman? Um, but, but, and for some, for some of them, they just, they just couldn't do it because they, they hadn't yet, they'd never been asked to do something like that before. And they hadn't, didn't have the, I suppose, the prerequisite skills to be able to do that effectively yet. Um, and then, uh, you know, a third of them actually really got into it. I think they really got something out of it. And they were, they've started, some of them have started to, to go through their work in a much more thorough way than I would have expected a year 10 class at this so point to do. What you've done there so, is you've just um, built up a bank of um, the children's prior knowledge. So when you go yeah. to the classroom the next time, you know the third they've got it, you can give them that task to go on independently and you can focus mm -hmm. your efforts on the other two thirds. So automatically yeah. you've uh, uh, kind of you've accessed their prior knowledge because you know where they're all at. And, yeah. and that, again, you've removed the scaffolding from some children, but maintained mm -hmm. it for other people. And it sounds a bit like, do you remember years ago, there was a big fad of a phase called KWL? Do you know this? Remind um, me. So it's um, the, there's three letters K W and L. What we already know, what we oh, yes. would like to know, yes, yes, and yes, then yes, what yes. we have learned, mm -hmm. and that came in, and everyone went bananas for it. Oh, this is the best thing ever! But then they didn't maintain it, and it kind of just became another fad or a phase that kind of that I um, barely recall. Yeah, yeah, that disappeared. But in in that is the essence of of uh, you know the kind of sparks the seeds of. Um, of metacognition but again it requires that consistency if you're doing yeah. that if every single teacher in your english department is doing that that kind of not maybe not necessarily the folding the paper into thirds but that kind of um right this is what we're doing then we're doing that that activating the pupils general uh, the prior knowledge the explicit strategy instruction then the guided practice independent practice and then the evaluation if you're all doing that then that can actually make a massive difference if, if teachers are doing it in isolation, that's when it doesn't quite. Yeah.
Okay. Well, um, in a minute, I want to hear from Yasmin about her FE experiences and, and if any of this, how any of this, all of this translates to students beyond GCSE. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> Big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make EdTech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. Sorry there, guys. Had a little uh, mic drop moment by accident. All right. So, Yasmin, what do you think about everything that Claire has told us about metacognition and potential strategies to use? Like, do you see this as being usable and relevant and important to your role as a science teacher in an FE college? Oh, definitely. Um, so I was nodding along enthusiastically, particularly with this idea of um, activating the prior knowledge and then the modelling and guiding them through it. And the whole time I was there thinking back to my education experience mm -hmm. and thinking, how would it be different for our students now if we went back to using just a normal whiteboard and overhead projectors without the fancy technology? Mm -hmm. so that we were really modeling what we were doing live um, and I think that could be really interesting but it's for me it's all about that modeling and guiding the practice um, but it's picking the skill or the task that I want them to really work on so at the minute my students I know are struggling with um, a particular science question where they give some investigations, some data and a conclusion and it says evaluate this conclusion. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm currently having to model how to go through the information, highlighting things in the information, sort of looking at guided answers and mark schemes so that they're gradually building up a knowledge base to approach them themselves. But it's that it's hard work and it's, <laughs> time. It, it's taking a lot of time, but I think once they have it, they'll have it. But the big problem is some of them are too scared to have a go at questions like that because they don't know how to deal with failure. Yeah. And, and that's the big that... part of independent learning. Yeah. 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 As soon as they hit a roadblock, 
they just don't know how to they don't know how to get over it or under it or around it they just kind of sit in the middle of the road and pout and i'm i'm that that's one of the biggest issues i'm finding especially with the key stage three boys that i'm teaching i mentioned this on on the last show um, two weeks ago about how it's it's so difficult to to kind of encourage um that age of boy (laughs) it makes them sound like some sort of alien species um in particular yeah yeah do you know what i'm not even going to pretend that they're not at this point um because the way the way it comes across to me anyway um is that they they're under this like intense pressure to be manly and to be you know like their whatever footballer they're idolizing at this point in time and to to not um emasculate themselves or 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 look weak in front of their bros and it's it just has such a knock-on effect on what they're willing to do and what they're willing to try and their resilience and their their ability to pick themselves up yeah and it's it's so difficult because i i spent um almost 11 years in total in a girl's school which is you know the concept of which is flawed on a number of levels, but I've realized it's much easier to create that, that safe learning environment where everyone feels safe to make a mistake and make an error and not be perfect and make a bit of a fool of themselves, like where it's okay to mess up. It just, it was so easier to create that space when you didn't have the, you know, the hormonal paranoid, um, macho (laughs) trying to be macho 13 year old boys who are absolutely terrified of their image being shattered and it's in front of the girls it is tough it is tough i mean but the key to kind of um succeeding is to set hard challenges that's Mm -hmm. the thing otherwise they're not gonna they're not gonna progress um but it does need to be an appropriate level but it it it's really kind of um if the children think, or I keep calling them children, if the pupils think that they're not learning, because I mean, if they see you as a teacher sitting at the front kind of barking instructions, they're going to switch off, et cetera, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. if you're standing to one side and they're doing it independently, they might Mm -hmm. kind of think, well, hang on, I'm not learning because what I thought was learning isn't happening. Yeah, the kind of old school teacher at the front, the didactic kind of approach with your blackboards. If you're not, if you're kind of giving them this challenge and then saying, right, this is how you solve it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it might kind of uh, um, appeal to their kind of sense of being champion and winning at stuff. Yeah, you know, which teenage boys like doing. Um, they do, yeah. but I'm also at the same time I'm reminded of something because I was I was a horrible child. Like I feel, I'm still in touch with a number of my teachers from primary and secondary school, and I apologize to them on a regular basis because I would not want to teach me. And I I have this one very clear memory that was <laughs> that was not not my proudest moment, um, where my I was in year six and my teacher was trying to demonstrate, I don't remember what she was trying to demonstrate to us, but it involved those little plastic cubes that you have in math classes that like create these, like, yeah, yeah. They like link together into these really long sticks that the kids then try and like use like lightsabers, right? So these, these little plastic cubes. 
And whatever the point was, we were supposed to figure it out by ourselves. And I was not having any of this. I just wanted to be told what the thing was that I needed to know, that I needed to do. I didn't want to fiddle around with little plastic cubes. I just wanted to do the thing and know the thing and learn the thing and pass the test and get on with my life and get my 100% and move on. Like that's the kind of kid I was. Don't waste my time. So I was so, and she was, she was trying so hard. I was disgusting. She was trying to, no, I was the, I was honestly, I was the kind of, I was one of those really polarizing students that you either loved or hated. I either was brilliant for you, probably on an annoying level, or I made your life miserable. Anyway, um, she was, she was, but that shows what what (laughs) the children is. Well, yes. Had this kind of knowledge of metacognition, like, well, that's the one that I just need to say why she's learning this. Give her that real world example. But she was trying, she was trying so hard to do this. And I'm sure she said so many things in so many ways. And she was trying to do all the things that we're talking about. And I just, at one point, just threw the plastic cubes down and was like, you're the teacher. Teach me. <laughs> at full volume. Um, at now, full volume. And now I'm at, and karma, and karma is real, people. I don't care what your religious perspective is. I it comes I around. I do. I mean, I, in oh. my opinion, it does come down to the culture of the school as well. Because um, if, if uh, pupils are introduced to this concept of challenge from year seven, and then it's in every single lesson, and they get bored of hearing the word metacognition, and they, they know where to come in. I make no secret of my planning. My planning is always up mm-hmm. the wall. And it's not for SLT, it's not for the planning scrutiny, it's not for the work scrutiny, it's the children. I mean, I, I, I've always kind of uh, advocated for, we always talk about revision, don't we? We always talk about revision. Mm-hmm. And you know, you take the etymology of that, going back, re-looking. I've tried to champion pre-vision. So there's the plan for the year, you know what's coming up. Mm-hmm. Have a look. Oh, okay, because then if the children know it already, so what? We can just build on it yeah. and make it solid and stuff. And I think a lot of teachers are afraid. No, no, you can't look at my planning. It's secret. Well, who's it for? Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. it, is it for your, your head of school, your head of department? Who's going to come and look at it? What are they going to do with it? They're just going to tick off yeah. a checklist to say that they've looked at your planning. The people that make yeah. a difference in are, are the children right in front of you. Let them see the planning. Obviously, don't put the personal data on, like, oh, here's my G, here's my G&T and here's my SEND ones. But if you put up the yeah. content, this is what we're doing. Then the children are going to be cu- they're naturally curious, bless them. They're going to look at that and go, "Oh, next week we're doing. Oh, I wonder what I wonder what fronted adverbials are. That sounds cool. I'm going to have a look." Yeah. And then if you yeah. to reward that and build up that kind of that motivation within them, where it becomes kind of almost cool to learn. Now I get it, Year Nine boys, and it's usually Year Nine boys. They don't want to learn, but if it's already in there, and the whole kind of um, the, the whole trust or the whole kind of uh, educational authority has adapted has adopted this kind of process when it becomes yeah. the norm to use metacognition yeah. and the norm to do that challenge because again we get from early years and it's like thank you by early years into primary school then it's key stage one then it's key stage two then it's secondary then it's sixth form then it's fe and if if there was a solid thread going through every single one then i think that would make a massive difference yeah i agree and and maybe if you know, that teacher, that, that freshly, that poor woman, if that freshly qualified teacher hadn't tried this new thing with my class that one day in year six, mm-hmm. or if she had, but other teachers had tried to do similar things or try different approaches. And if I'd been used to that, 
I wouldn't have literally thrown my little plastic box around the room and screamed at her. Literally threw uh, your toy out of the pram, didn't you? Literally threw <laughs> no, I threw my I threw my plastic cubes out of the box all over the floor, <laughs> like the little cretin that I was. Um, she was just trying to help. Yeah, it it, it definitely has to be a. Uh, whole school, whole school, every teacher, all in kind of approach, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. It to. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to work. It just becomes another fad, another joke. I've seen so many. I've been teaching so long that I, I didn't think it, but I've seen so many things come and go. I've seen Edward de Bono's thinking hats. I've seen mm-hmm. um, KWL come in. I've seen creative curriculums come in. I've seen Every Child Matters come in, and it don't work because it just becomes the latest thing. And if you cut back yeah. everything, all the all the research and metacognition and working memory is not political. It's not kind of the latest fad. It's the evidence is stretching back to eighteen nineties, and yet no one has thought right. Every school needs to do this. You know, it's, yeah. they push their own agendas. Really. Well, we had we had as I said, we've had we've had a range of providers, a range of CPD providers, a range of organizations come in. There's so, there's so many out there that, that are, or at least have in the past, been talking about metacognition um, into one of my previous schools. And I remember the the teaching and learning lead talking about it and doing a whole CPD about it. Um, and then it just kind of faded, as you said, it kind of, it came and then it went <laughs> and then it just didn't, it didn't stick. So I think I think making that stick and and stick long enough to to see some changes and see some results is the, the necessary. Is clear. The research has said basically, uh, if you get any metacognition embedded into your school, it makes seven months progress difference. Yeah, and seven months in a school is massive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, until we can change the system um, entirely, and we then. Will. And we will one day. <laughs> one day. Um, it's on all right. The way. It's on the way. I live in hope because well, the alternative is much more dire. All right. Well, thank you, Claire. And thank you, Yasmin. Thank you so much for joining me. And that's been really um, in, enlightening. And, and also, I feel a little bit better knowing that th- those moments where you stand in front of the classroom going, why don't these kids know how to use glue sticks is a kind of universal experience. And it's not something that is a personal failure of mine. So thank you very much. Um, And thank you for listening. And I hope everyone has a lovely remainder of your Monday night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.